0: So it's safe to assume that if I would do something to irritate these bees, I'm going to get stung. They're going to defend themselves. That's right. Okay. Would a bee ever sting another bee or have any reason to do that? The only time I've ever seen that happen is when a bee from another colony tried to come into this colony to take some of the honey home with her. I've never seen it happen inside the colony itself. They don't seem to have the same kind of conflict that we sometimes see in family or community. Um, If there's a job to be done, they work it out cooperatively without conflict. Uh, If they need more pollen to come in, they'll do that. they'll switch from whatever they were doing, gather the pollen, gather the nectar, gather water for air conditioning, whatever they need to do, they automatically do it with no direction, no conflict. It it, it really functions nicely. So that's crazy to me to think that As a stereotype, maybe it's just me, we have this idea that bees are very aggressive creatures and they're always out to attack us. When the reality is if they actually took a look at us, they might see us as more aggressive than they would ever be. And they would decide they'd rather be a bee than a people. I think I would rather be a bee than a people. (laughs) (laughs) So through this uh, series, we've been Introduced to the work of eminent professor of biology, uh, Thomas Seeley, who in 2009 uh, discovered that a bee could produce a stop dancing signal by literally butting its head against another bee and making a soft uh, beeping sound, which was caused by a flight muscle. So an accumulation of these headbutts within the hive would eventually cause that particular bee, that dancing bee, to stop dancing. Seely observed that the colony used these headbutts, this kind of stop signal, to reduce the number of bees who were foraging from a perilous food source. In other words, bees, Butt heads in the process of making decisions. Now, we live in a country that has this saying, one nation under God. Now, we planned this message about five or six months ago, and I can't help but smile at God's timing. There have been a lot of butting heads going on over the last few weeks in our nation. It seems that you cannot be a leader in a nation. You cannot be a leader in a business. You cannot be, for that matter, a B without butting heads with someone at some point. In the same way, what we're going to suggest to you today is that any enthusiastic follower of Jesus will invariably butt heads with someone in the church at some point. Here's why. Conflict is inevitable, wrong must be made right, issues must be acknowledged, and problems must be solved. When we butt heads, and we will if we are passionate followers of Jesus, our goal has to be as a community to consciously choose the mind of Christ. So what we're suggesting here is that if we are enthusiastic about the mission of Christ in the world, week number one, if we are flexible, bees write their plans, Pastor Steve told us in pencil, if we recognize that we are not here to be served but to serve, the result of this will be, in all likelihood, quite probably more butting heads, not less, because conflict is inevitable. Wrong needs to be put right. And sometimes all of us need to be redirected. You see, when 3,000 people, that's roughly the attendance that we have here just at this campus, kind of go out into the world and start to say, God, what do you you want me to do? What wrong do you want me to, to begin to put right? What wrong in me do you want put right? What do you want us to do? Invariably, what will happen is that so many opportunities will open up to the people of God that we will, like the scout bees, rush back in here, be all excited, and try to get someone else to join us in what we've discovered. It's natural, it's normal. And so, what will happen in that process is we will butt heads. That's not bad, that's just life. It was Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, who said, if two people agree on everything, then one of them is unnecessary. He's right. You see, with enthusiasm, with passion, comes friction. But with flexibility, writing our pines in pencil, with the servant heart, there comes the possibility of turning conflict into communion. Now, conflict typically exists for a whole host of reasons. Here's five of them. Lack of common understanding, poor communication skills, unclear expectations, power place manipulation, and even bad behavior. That's a very nice way of saying, you know, people behaving badly. Now, this tells us, if you look at this list, this tells us then that, there are a couple of things that are critical just in a natural perspective of turning conflict into community or into communion. One of them is good communication. Often conflict exists and goes wrong, it's unhealthy because of poor communication. Secondly, conflict exists when there's a lack of clarity. Now, since conflict is inevitable when you have a passionate people, And since budding heads is part and parcel of that decision making process, here's the reality. Conflict isn't an obstacle to be avoided, but an obstacle to overcome. The body of Christ isn't called to deal with conflict, we're called to eliminate it. And essential to eliminating conflict is that we communicate clearly with our eyes on the mission. Of Jesus so we need to communicate well we need to be clear about what we're communicating about and that's if you're in business or in life or in your marriage that's where a lot of this works but in the Bible there's, there's something else that's needed and as we look at the events in our nation over the last month we recognize this is needed now it's what the Bible calls sanctification being made Holy. Now, there's a British uh, professor who's an eminent professor and a scholar, the Reverend Spooner, who died in 1930. Now, he was, um, he had a terrible habit of confusing his message in the process of giving it. And so at a wedding, for example, he turned to the groom and said, it is customary to cuss the bride. Well, you have to work with me on this one. Okay, he went to the dean of the university and he said, is the bean dizzy instead of is the dean busy? He was giving a a eulogy at a fellow pastor's funeral and he praised his departed colleague as being a shoving leopard to his flock. (laughs) Speaking to a group of farmers, one time Spooner intended to greet them as the good old sons of toil, but what came out was, I see before me tons of soil. Appropriately for today's message, he was once giving a a sermon in a congregation, and Spooner made that remark, there will never be peace in a home in which the dinner swells. Meaning, there'll never be peace in the home in which the sinner dwells. Now, in some of our homes, both would probably be true. But the point, of course, is that Spooner's right, that there's never going to be peace in the home. There's never going to be peace in a nation unless people act on the values that they hold, and unless the church acts according to the people that we have become. In other words, if we want to act like sinners, then we'll never see our conflict turning to communion. But if we truly believe that we have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of Christ, then it's possible for us to see conflict turn to communion if we start to act like the saints or the children of God that we have become. It's possible. But in order for that to happen, it's not just about communication. It's not just about clarification. It's also about sanctification. God wants to put things right and uses our passion but needs our flexibility. He needs our commitment to serve in order for that process of us being put right on the inside. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians four. I'm not going to put this on the screen. Sometimes I want you to, to look at the text. And so if you haven't got a Bible, you can go and grab one from the, from the pews. If you've got an electronic version, turn to Ephesians four. Okay, and Ephesians four. And I want to read from verses 17 through 27, because this is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. Look, guys, you've been brought together as one. That's what Pastor Led said last week, one church. There's one baptism. There's one faith. There's one Lord. One. We are one nation under God, but there's something that stops us from living like this. We are one church, but there's something that stops us from living like this. Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's have a look at this, Ephesians 4 from verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. Look at that. Sometimes Paul will say, I am telling you this, not the Lord. But here he says, I insist on it. This is important to me. Oh, by the way, if you're not sure, this is important to God too. And this is what's important. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles do. Now remember, he's writing extensively to Gentiles. That means non-Jews. Don't live like that anymore. So what is he asking them to do? Live like Jews? No, live like Christians. Live like Christ. And how do Gentiles live? In the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were also, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put it off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. There we have it. We're all members of one body. And then he says, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And how many of us married couples wish that verse wasn't in the Bible? (laughs) And don't give the devil a foothold. Now, what's interesting with this in Ephesians 4 is that Ephesians 4, like Romans 1 that we'll look at next week, Paul portrays sin as a malfunctioning of the mind. In Romans 1, sin is a malfunctioning of the mind that results in alienation. Alienation from God that leads to alienation from other people. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about sin as a malfunctioning of the mind that produces a hardening of the heart that results in... Alienation from God and alienation from other people. Sin here is portrayed as a malfunctioning of the mind. Here it leads to a hardening of the heart. And one of the big reasons that our conflict isn't positive is because our hearts are too hard. And one of the reasons that our hearts are too hard is that sin has twisted the way we think, and so if someone were to ask us, "Okay, Craig, looking at our nation, looking at the the, the church, is so divided across the world. How can conflict lead to a significant experience of community?" We would have to point to the work of God on someone's heart. It begins with the heart. Say it over and over again, the heart work is the hard work, and then we point out that conflict leads to communion in the church when three things happen, according to Paul. Firstly, when butting heads causes us to stop and think, let me put off my old self. Let me stop dealing with conflict in the way that I used to. If a person comes to Jesus... And their growth in Jesus isn't matched with a transformation in the way they deal with conflict. They haven't understood conversion. That's what Paul is saying. Look at this, verse 22. You were taught. See, there's a way that the world teaches people to deal with conflict. The tragedy of what we're witnessing right now is that our kids are being taught that this is the way the problems get sorted by leaders in public office. No, it's not. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Why? It's been corrupted by its deceitful desires. Put off your old self. How many of you wake up on a Sunday morning and think, what do I wear to church today? I used to think about it that casually until I started working in a church that live-streamed the service. So I moved to the States a decade ago, and we live-streamed the service. So we streamed the service here live. It goes into 909. They record it in high def. And and I kind of like striped and check shirts. If you were to look at my wardrobe, I haven't got a shoe fetish or anything else. I've probably got a bit of a shirt fetish, okay? I I like my shirts. And I really like striped shirts, and I really like check shirts. So I moved into the States, and I started to wear my check shirts, my striped shirts, and... uh, I did that until I got a letter from our tech and media department way back in 2009. And uh, this is quite literally what they told me, I'll read it to you. After watching several videos and running them through our editing system, I have noticed something. White shirts, shirts with small stripes, and double whammy white shirts with small stripes, the ones that I like, are being overexposed. Normally, stripes is always a bad idea because they have what is called a crawling effect, almost like they are moving. This is due to the limitation of the camera pixels. White or bright shirts are hard to balance out. If I lower the gamma, then your face is too dark, and so on. I hate to do this, he said. I'm sure he didn't. I hate to do this, but I am working on an approved color and pattern list for Sunday morning, and this is nothing the broadcast guys haven't been doing since 1928. Typical of the church to be 80 years behind. (laughs) I was basically told, look, if you want to do this properly, there are certain things you can't do. And Craig, there are certain shirts that you just have to take off. Put them off. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians here is exactly the same thing. He's saying, look, you were taught that there was a certain way you handled yourself. There's a certain way that you did things. But now you're a follower of Jesus. He says there's a way that Gentiles deal with issues. And the problem lies in the futility of the mind and the choices that they made against God. And you know, I make choices against God when my old self causes me to tackle conflict in an unhealthy way. An unhealthy conflict is a product of a malfunctioning mind. Now what does that basically mean? If Paul says, put off, then what he's basically saying is our old way of dealing with conflict doesn't address a lack of skill but a lack of self-control. If we're dealing with a conf- in, in our conflict with our conflict in a way that we've always dealt with it and it's really not honoring God. Then let me just tell you this issue isn't a lack of skill it's a lack of self-control. And Paul says, "We have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ." The question is, will you consciously choose the mind of Christ? Put it off. So we experience communion through conflict when we're willing to put off the old self. And that means when we're willing to allow God to start to work on our hearts. But secondly, we start to experience the positive side of conflict when we put on our new self. Verses 23 and 24, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to, be, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I love that. We put on the new self. We put on the mind of Christ in order to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now that phrase, the attitude of your minds, is literally being made new in the spirit of your mind. This can mean the Christian mind guided by the spirit. It's a call for us to consciously choose the mind of Christ. And Paul's point is, we can choose it because we've been made new. Now what's the implication of this when it comes to conflict? This is how one commentator puts it. The application of this text is straightforward. Do not live like the Americans do with their futile thinking. It's an American commentator, by the way. Before you think I'm being judgmental, he goes on the very next sentence to say this. Change the label if necessary. In other words, do not live like the Brits do with their futile thinking. Do not live like the Welsh do with their futile thinking. Do not live like the Americans do, he says, with their futile thinking. Change the label if necessary. But you cannot conform to your society and its system of thought. In general, the more we conform to our society, the less we understand conversion. See, there's a way of dealing with conflict that actually reflects Christ in the conversion that we've received in Christ. And there's a way of dealing with conflict that actually reflects the world and the system that we came out of. And rather than conform, we're told to put off and to put on. We're called to allow the Christ mind to be our own. Now, dealing with conflict in this new self I think impacts us in a number of levels. The the first thing is, it it, it forces us to, to admit that the conflict exists. I wonder how many of us have experience of relationships where the way we deal with conflict in the new self is to sweep it under the carpet and not to acknowledge it. Guys, we're good at that. We have an ability, many of us generalization, to basically move on without dealing with it. Now conflict, okay, typically takes three forms. Firstly, there's usually conflict over task. Now, Vipka's in the Ukraine, she's thousands of miles away, and this Thursday afternoon she texted me and she wrote one word, trash, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I'm like, she's seven hours ahead, right? And I'm like, really? You go the other end of the world, you're in drug houses and training leaders to do rehabilitation work, and all you say to me is trash, not, hey, Han, kids okay? You doing okay? Love you. And she wrote back, I know you, trash, question mark. I wrote back, yes, love you too. Yeah, we didn't forget the trash. A lot of conflict happens over tasks that just don't get done. Some of it happens over procedures, the way we do things. You know, you get married and you like squeezing the toothpaste from the bottom and he likes squeezing it from the middle. Drives some people nuts. Procedures, how you do things. It's amazing how how procedures, the way we do things, causes conflict, but it does. Happens in business too. Thirdly, and the difficult one for many of us, especially in the church, is the interpersonal conflict. It's the extra grace required people. They drive you nuts. And here's the tragedy in Holland. If somebody in this church drives you nuts, then you've got another 171 churches to choose from. And so rather than deal with the issue, you'll change church. See, in some parts of the world that I've ministered in, that hasn't been a choice. You either sinned in not gathering together or you worked the stuff through. Oh, that was a fun place to pass there because there was conflict everywhere. But I'll tell you what, the stuff got worked through because we had no other choice than to acknowledge it existed. Because it was real, we could see it. See, dealing with conflict in a way that honors Christ admits it exists. Secondly, if we want to deal with this in the new self, we have to analyze the situation. We have to look at it. We can do that by asking simple questions. What is this conflict actually about? Who is involved? What motivations or incentives exist to settle the conflict? Have we tried to sort this out a different way? What were the results? In other words, we have to think about it. We have to think about it. Paul says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, in the mind, in the spirit of our mind, we need to think about these things. And we think about this because we want the Spirit of God to change our hearts. And without analyzing what's happening on the inside, lasting communication isn't possible. We need to analyze it, we need to look at it. Thirdly, we need to communicate. Now this is where a lot of conflicts never get resolved because the communication is poor. But there needs to be communication, we need to talk and that conversation needs to be free, it needs to be open, but it also needs to be accurate. One of the challenges Vipka and I had when we were, I'm from Britain, she's from Germany and uh, we were so different and we realized that when we would try to work through conflict, invariably we would use words like never and always. You do that? You always forget the trash. Or you never. Now, communication needs to be free. It needs to be open. But it needs to ignore and move away from using words like that. There needs to be communication. And fourth, we need to honestly listen and ask questions, remembering that God has given us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen. As you're listening to this, right, it becomes pretty clear that in some areas, turning conflict into communion is actually hard work. Let's be honest. Sometimes in a church, it's the easiest thing that we can do to go somewhere else. Right? So why on earth would anybody stay and work it through? Why? I think the truth is we're only ever going to stay and work it through. In any kind of situation, whether it's friendships, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, whether it's the church, whether it's the government, we're only going to do that if we appreciate the value of the community that we're a part of. See, conflict turns to communion when butting heads causes us to choose if you're in conflict in your marriage right now, it can lead to communion if you make the choice for your marriage. Conflict can lead to communion if you make the choice for your friendship. Conflict can lead to communion if you make a choice for your family. Conflict can lead to communion if you make a choice for your church. Conflict can lead to communion if you make a choice for your country. And it goes on. You're only ever going to work it through if you consciously choose to believe in the community that you're a part of. And too many people in not working the conflict through in a church, in a nation, are basically saying, I don't believe in this entity enough to stay and work it through. And so we we'll Run. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ and the encouragement of this series is, folks, let's consciously choose the mind of Christ together. Let's consciously choose to set an example of how a community turns conflict into communion. And verses 25 and verse 27 tell us how to do that. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor That doesn't give the extroverts the right to bulldoze the introverts. It's not what it's about. We're all members of one body, that's why. We're all members of one body. And in reality, the truth is there may be 172 churches or whatever is in Holland, but there really is only one. And why do we do all of this? Because if we don't, we give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold, Paul says. And so, choosing the new community is to choose in favor of healthy conflict. We're always going to butt heads. It's always going to happen. But we can embrace healthy conflict for the good of the body. We can embrace healthy conflict for the good of the marriage. We can embrace healthy conflict for the good of our family. We can embrace healthy conflict for the good of our nation. That's the tragedy of this weekend. It's all about values. And the reality is our church will only be as healthy as our conflict. Our nation will only be as healthy as our conflict. And just like honeybees that bang heads and emit these tones to come to the right conclusion, we too must be willing to deal with conflict in a way that doesn't give the devil a foothold in our church. We must be willing to deal with conflict in a way that doesn't give him a foothold in our nation. So, what do we do to make that work? I think what we do is, firstly, we have to learn to be Christ like. Again, I just love that phrase created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Be Christ like. In your conflict, be Christ like. Take off your old self, consciously choose your new self, the mind of Christ. And here's what that means, controlling your emotions. I love the way the verse 26 is sandwiched between 25 and 27. Of course, 25, 26 follows 25 and precedes 27, but you understand what I'm saying. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. You see, when we're angry or offended, we should evaluate our attitudes and our motives before confronting someone else. To harshly uh, react in our emotions would be to act in the old self. That's Paul's point, and we've decided in Christ to put that off, and this new way of thinking demands thoughtful, loving interaction with the rest of the body of Christ. And when in a confrontation we measure our response as an aggression, or as an expression rather, of our new selves because we're a part of the church, the resulting conflict is healthy and free from sin. Then communion is experienced. Second, it means respecting other people respecting other people. In the new way of thinking, dealing with conflict is critical to protecting the body from the attacks of Satan and the destruction that follows. Being Christ-like respects other people because it respects the community that we're a part of. It also enables us to maintain community. Healthy conflict, being like Christ, means the healthy conflict brings about a unity and that unity is essential to the health of the church. And so our new mind seeks peace through confrontation, not victory in conflict. And there is a difference. We're to be Christ-like. Secondly, we are to be realistic. We're to be realistic. What I mean by that is conflicts are not always bad. Conflicts are not always bad. I wish I had time to go into this, but conflict invariably leads us to a point where we have to decide what is the most important thing. What is the priority? Conflict can be good because it helps us realize man, I've got such a long way to go in my growth in Christ likeness. Now, we may not like that lesson, but it's a good one. Conflict isn't always bad, sometimes it's good. But here's the other part of this. Conflict isn't always resolvable. Now, forgiveness is always a response that the child of God makes to someone who has wronged us. But resolution in a relationship is only possible when there's reconciliation. And reconciliation basically means that someone, the offending party, has acknowledged wrong. And there can't honestly be that reconciled relationship where there isn't any conflict in a way that's healthy if one side hasn't acknowledged it. So we need to be realistic. Look, conflict isn't always bad, but it isn't always resolvable either. Thirdly here, we need to recognize that to deal with conflict in a way that is honoring of the community that we're part of, the church, we need to focus on the solution. We need to focus on the solution. We need to work to turn conflict to communion. That's our goal. Hey, there's something splitting us right now. There's something dividing us. There's the potential here for this thing to go out. I was going to say auseinander, That's a German word. It's basically to fall apart. Hey, I don't want that to happen, so you know what, we need, to, we need to sort this out, we need to deal with this, because our unity is so important, our marriage is so important, our family is so important, our church is so important, and I see us drifting here, guys, we've got to come back together. A man asked this doctor, can you do anything about my snoring? The doctor looked at him and said, why is it bothering your wife? And the man said, no, it's disturbing the entire church. That pithy little story reminds us that the problem from the church, the problem for a nation, the problem for a marriage, the problem for a family is invariably from within, not by snoring, but by sin. And sin is presented in this text as a malfunctioning of the mind that leads to a hardening of the heart. And listen, if there's conflict in our lives that is causing us to get further and further apart from one another, and it is not bothering us, then our mind is malfunctioning. And there's only one resolution to that, deal with your heart. Deal with your heart. Be focused on it. Now, what I love is reading through the early church. The early church wasn't a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. But they dealt with some pretty incredible issues. They worked through conflict. And in the book of Acts, for example, the adversary uh, uses, the devil uses a number of tools to try and destroy the church. He used poverty, but the church just responded by giving more generously. He used persecution, but the church responded by preaching more boldly. He used hypocrisy, but the church just responded by believing more generously. And he also used division, especially racial division. And how did the church respond to it? We see that right here in Acts 15. This is how they responded to this. Division that had the potential to rip them to pieces. And there in Acts chapter 15, We see what they did. Now, this conflict is all through the book of Acts. You see it in Acts 6. You see it in Acts 21. But Acts 15 is amazing. And what we see here is a number of the solutions that they came up with. No agreement but acceptance. In Acts 15, 1 and 2, Paul and Barnabas are basically in a debate with some Jewish believers asking themselves whether a Gentile needs to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas said, yes, they do. Uh, No, they don't. The Jews said, yes, they do. They disagreed. There was no agreement, but there was acceptance. Acceptance on what? Acceptance on what the next step was. Some of you are in conflict here, and you're poles apart. You're as far apart as these Jewish believers were with Paul and Barnabas. And and you've got a choice to make. You can either say, look, there's no agreement, that's it. Or you can say there's no agreement, and guess what? This relationship is so important that we have to determine what the next step is. For some of you, that may well be going to a person and saying, hey, we've got this issue. It's been there for a long time, and you know what? We just need your help. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did with these Jewish believers. They said, okay, we don't agree. This has the potential to drive us, but there's only one body, there's only one Lord, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the discussion back to Jerusalem. That's the next section. Oh, that was a meeting, my friends. That was the church business meeting of all church business meetings. There was so much headbutting in that meeting. And at the end of it, Peter stood up because the Holy Spirit had spoken. And he said, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And every man from that point has said, Hallelujah, from that decision. Seriously. Peter stood up and said, Hey, we've got an agreement on this thing. Now, did everybody like the conclusion? No. But God had spoken. The decision had been made, and the church moved on. Full agreement. Not everybody liked it, but there was a mechanism for making the decision. Every organization has a mechanism for making a decision. What's your mechanism as a couple? What's your mechanism as a family? Sometimes our mechanism has been to bring some of the older kids in. I remember about a couple of years ago, I thought it would be a really good idea to become European. We had three cars, we didn't need three cars, let's go to two cars. And so I made the decision that I would get rid of mine. And we would just drive one of the boys' car. I would drive the boys' car and Vipka would drive hers. Well, that's the idea. I ended up driving Vipka's car and the boys and Vipka ended up sharing. And so they called a the meeting and said, this is all fine. You get the car whenever you want it. We have to share. We ain't doing this anymore, Dad, you're overruled. And we had to go back to three cars, and my European family still can't believe that it's not possible for a family to live off one car. What's the point here? Mechanisms. What's your mechanism for dealing with this? They had a mechanism. There was agreement. Move on. Move on. The third thing here, this is amazing, partial agreement. This is where Paul himself had to learn. So the church moves on. Now the mission can go forward. Paul wants to go on to the next phase of his ministry, but they need some help. So Barnabas says, what about John Mark? Paul was having nothing to do with John Mark, interpersonal conflict. See, John Mark decided to go home when the, when the going got tough, Billy Joel reference, right? When the tough, Paul says, really get going. Now, as Britney Spears in the first service, Is Billy Joel in the second one, that's how bad it gets, right? From Britney Spears to J- Billy Joel in one morning. But the point is this, there's conflict. So, what they do is they reach a partial agreement. The partial agreement was Paul's going to go one way with Silas, Barnabas is going to go another way with John Mark. See, they butt heads. This wasn't necessarily nice, but it did prove to be healthy because the gospel went to multiple places. And who did Paul call for at the end of his life in 2 Timothy? John Mark, he proved himself faithful. What's the point with all of this? If you're going to get involved in meaningful relationships, meaningful relationships is going to result in butting heads. If you're ever going to be involved in decisions that need to be made that really are life-changing, and our nation has made that decision over this weekend, there is going to be conflict. But what separates the child of God from someone who is not a child of God, is that we have the mind of Christ. Church, let's use it. Because what this nation needs, what this town needs, are examples of people who deal with conflict in a Christ-like way. Let's go and live like Jesus, and let's see our town and our nation turned upside down through a ragtag group of people in the way the early church transformed their world. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. I wanna give you a moment just to think about the application of this message to you and for you, for you personally, in terms of dealing with conflict according to your new self, not your old self. In terms of how you're going to intercede for our nation over the next weeks and months. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And what this act of taking communion reveals to us is that alienation can lead to fellowship because of the finished work of Jesus. That changes everything. Once, the Bible says, we were alienated, strangers, far off. But God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has reconciled us and brought us together. Now we are friends and even sons and daughters of God Himself. That's what's possible through Christ. That's what's possible when we put on the mind of Christ in our own lives. And so as the ushers just come forward as the band takes the stage we're going to be led into communion in a moment the ushers will come and, and just dismiss you by rows where you can come and take the bread and, and dip it into the cup and as you do that just be thankful for the fact that God has dealt with and removed the conflict that existed between us and him. And as you take that bread and drink that cup, just ask him to help you deal with conflict in your life in a way that honors him. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that your word tells us that he has destroyed that dividing wall of hostility. And God, we pray that you would continue to do that in our own lives. Father, we love you and we thank you for everything you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.